Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com str. You have somehow ended up listening to the stuff that's real that you didn't know was real but also is cool podcast or sturdy dick were bayek or uh never mind Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us once again. We are your favorite podcast hosts, or at least, well, maybe not your favorite host, but we are the hosts of your favorite podcast. That is an objective fact. Presumptuous of you to say. Well, presumptuous or not. In a world of Pat Flynn's and Joe Rogan's, how can we dare to be someone's favorite podcast host? We are Joe Flynn and Pat Rogan. (laughs) Coming at you live. <laughs> we'll see if that gets us some SEO. We should totally start a show, the Joe Flynn and Pat Rogan show. We should. We'll see what they see. What anybody says. Yeah. We'll see how how quickly we get sued. No, no, no. You know, getting sued aside and SEO aside and all the other things aside, we have some things for you today that we are going to talk about that I'm excited to jump into. Kevin, I was hoping that you wouldn't mind jumping in first. Well, I just can't wait to hear what you have to say about these guys. I live. I watched the show. You've watched the Let's show. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Yep. yep. I didn't know there was a show. There well, was a show? It's not a show. It's called Turn. Oh, is that based on, on this? It's, well, it's not necessarily this book. I think there was a book called Turn, but it's okay. about uh, Washington but it's about Spy Ring. this thing. Yeah, okay. So you know spoilers. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it's about the thing that you're talking about today. <laughs> so yes, okay. Because so I'm assuming nobody's read the title of the episode. Or the show notes when this has been posted. Man, they're <laughs> as right, in well, the dark of it as fair I Fair enough. So. Fair enough. Okay, so I'm talking about the Culper spy ring, otherwise known as George Washington's Secret Six. And this was essentially like before the Avengers, there was George Washington's Secret Six. That's what this kind of feels like when you start reading this. And basically, when the British were invading and George Washington was leading Americans in the American War, the Liberation War, as some of us call it. So back in September 1776, we were not doing well. There kind of came a point where we were losing, frankly, and started kind of starting to rely on more guerrilla-style tactics. And one of those was George Washington formed this spy ring, which he named the Culper Spy Ring, the code name for it, was named after Culpepper. It was the name of the, the region or the town, or wherever, where they were, I guess, where they sort of founded it. <laughs> yeah, and I believe they called the main guy. Washington gave him the nickname Culpepper. Yeah, um, Samuel Culpepper. Name. Yeah. So Townsend is the actual name okay, of yep. the guy. There's Talmadge and Townsend, and those guys were running back and forth to a guy named Woodhull, which is the guy who kind of ran all the day-to-day of the ring out of Long Island. And Townsend was, codename was Samuel Culper Jr. 
And Woodhull's name was Samuel Culper Sr. So, you know, it was this whole like spy back and forth thing. Now, these guys, they employed all kinds of cool stuff. They used a method of invisible ink to write letters back and forth to each other. And that was how they kind of kept the messages secret. So they would send actual letters that were just mundane day-to-day stuff. And then they would actually encode things. Sometimes they'd use code within the letter itself, like keywords and stuff like that. Sometimes they'd flat out write secret messages in an invisible ink that they invented. And you had to have the correct solution, the correct, uh, I don't know what you would call it. Like cipher or something? Not the cipher, but like the chemical that they needed to react. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Yeah, so it it wasn't like, they weren't using like lemon juice or milk or whatever, you know, the things that you learned when you were a kid to use as invisible ink. They had had something pretty cool. So, but they had to, right? I mean, they had to basically invent some new stuff because this is the British Empire who had at this point a long and storied history that we all know of military prowess, which must have included, and it does include, it included, you know, the British Empire would have had a pretty elaborate spy ring of its own. Yep. Um, and, and many, many centuries probably of history of this exact sort of espionage and these tactics. And so the American side just inventing this stuff, many of these people had never served in anything but an organized militia or even a loosely organized militia. So they were just making it up as they go along. So I, what I love about this whole story is that, like, in some ways, that gave them the advantage. You know, because just like Brave or not Braveheart, uh, the Patriot, the movie, the Patriot, they're all hiding in the woods and the British don't fight like that. And they're not, you know, uh, uh, adhering to the rules of warfare. They're making new rules. And so it was really interesting because at that time, I mean, right up until even the Civil War, like war was very regimented. Like people literally, I mean, I remember we went to Gettysburg and listened to some things, saw some sites and stuff about the Battle of Gettysburg. And uh uh-huh. They literally would just march out as they were being shot at, you know, because that was the way you did it. You, was, you marched in a straight line <laughs> to, yeah. toward your fate, and your your fate was in God's hands. So this ring, by the way, is credited with uncovering Benedict Arnold, famously known as the uh, American traitor. Also, right. John Andre, he was the chief intelligence officer for the British, for the right? British forces, yeah. Yeah. and he was actually hung uh, in October 1780 on George Washington's orders. So uh, there was a lot of intrigue and espionage there. Where I first heard about this was in a book by Brian Kilmeade, who you may have heard of. He's done some stuff on like History Channel and stuff like that. He's written several books on a variety of topics. As a resource for thriller writers, I think he's one of the best authors out there. But he wrote a book called George Washington's Secret Six. The subtitle was The Spy Ring That Saved the American Revolution. So... I have a personal history with this. Actually, Nick may or may not realize this, but he and I have a personal history with this book. Which is the first time I heard about this. Yes. And what it is, is I was in an airport on my way to Colorado Springs for the very first time that you and I met. Oh, okay. And I bought this book. This was... First time we met in person. So you're the one person who still buys hardback books in airport bookstores. I was in the airport. How can I spend $75 in the next five seconds? <laughs> oh, I have an idea. Let me walk into this bookstore. It just intrigued me, and I didn't want to read it on Kindle for some reason. I don't know. Every yeah, now I and then, I want to pick up a paperback and read it. You know, but, I like nonfiction, yeah. especially these biographical history books and hardcover. Yeah, these are nice. Yeah, and of course, guys like us read this stuff for a variety of reasons, you know, for the entertainment, but also for the, the research of it. So I've read a ton of these. 
And it also it had come out like that was um I was coming your way shortly after my birthday, and it actually had come out that the day that it was in the airport. Okay, so it was brand oh, wow. new. Yeah, because it came out on October eighteenth, twenty sixteen, was the release date, right? So that you know, I was flying into Colorado Springs. Some other reason, really, I think, but um, the bonus was that you and I would meet in person for the first time. So that, I was, was a, thinking was about the culprit spy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the whole time you and I met, I was thinking spies. Kara came up that time too. I think she was yeah with family a lot of it, right? You guys yeah, she stayed and... with her family, and I drove from Denver to. Colorado Springs to you took the murder risk and she wasn't going to do that right I mean I lived in a cabin at the top of a mountain uh, like it was a dirt like a sketchy dirt road that you you couldn't get in without all-wheel drive at some parts of the year and so you were like sure that sounds like a great place to go spend an evening or two you joke but that was exactly (laughs) what was going through my mind yeah you're like I'm coming up the mountain (laughs) and there's this big giant sign somebody like hand-painted Oh, yeah, that was Pat. So first of all, let me set Pat, the scene here. Pat. <laughs> <laughs> when I say I drove up the mountain, I don't mean like there was streetlights and nope homes on either side. Or whatever. I'm, I'm like literally I end up on a dirt road at some point. Mm. It's looking kind of sketchy. Let's just put it that way. I mean, it's and, a one lane road. I mean, there's no. Yeah, it's one lane. You, and you then stay on the road or you fall off a cliff. Yeah. This big hand painted <laughs> sign. Right as I'm entering what should be considered, what might be considered Nick's quote unquote neighborhood <laughs> that says trespassers will be shot. So I went anyway, full of faith that my friend Nick was on the uh, top was of that real. mountain. I was real. I was, real. I was up there and I was waiting, sipping some whiskey. <laughs> it, was a good, it was a good time. I remember that. That was great. So, yeah. So at that time I was reading about the Culper spy ring and I've been fascinated by this ever since. Like I said, I kind of think of it like, you know. This is like Washington's Avengers. It is. Because these guys were risking it all. And if you read the book, you learn there were more than just men involved in this. There were actually mm-hmm. some women involved in the ring. Well, so that's what I was going to ask. So I've seen the show turn. Yeah. I believe, I think it's History Channel, but usually not, history never does any actually history shows. Yeah. They're like, what about aliens? How about that? It's so the Histrionics Channel. <laughs> you know so i started watching the show with my dad it's admittedly a little slow you gotta be a big fan of history let's put it that way okay it's fictionalized and it's very good it's very well made it's very well produced well directed the acting is great the question i had was if they fictionalized the main talmage no not talmage whoever culpepper was we said there were two culpeppers but yeah culpepper the younger he would have been the main character in turn i believe townsend Townsend. Yeah, that sounds right. He was a, a farmer's son and yeah. a real hothead kind of dude. Smart, but you know, he was like, let's go stick it to him. And his dad was like, let's <clears> not. Let's his dad was actually involved with the British, just trying to, you know, play nice with both sides. He was a diplomat, yep. a local diplomat. Anyway, the younger one, who the series is about mostly, follows him and his love affair with this woman who ends up also being in the spy ring. Right. And she helps out and stuff. And they do it in a way that I don't think they could fictionalize that, her entire you know story. I yeah, think, is that I think Anna, been real. Anna Smith Strong? That, that yep, that's exactly yeah. who it is. Yep, Anna yeah. Strong. Yep, Anna Strong. Yeah, they think yeah. she was actually much more heavily involved than people think. That she may actually have been at one point or another. She may have been like Culpepper Senior in the ring. Okay, 
Uh, yeah, I could see it. I mean, they yeah. I didn't finish the series. We'd lost interest. I was staying with my parents, and so my dad and I would watch it, uh, and I tried to get Emily to watch it. I kept joking with her. I was like, the next episode, it gets really good. Yeah. The next episode, yeah. it gets really, really exciting. She wanted just more, you know, more to happen, but it was very yeah. slow burn kind of show. So this is one of the things I wanted to make sure I called out in the vein of the stuff they were doing that was all spy related, right? So she actually worked out a code that involved her clothesline, her laundry line. Yes, they do that in the yeah. series. Yep. And she would basically hang things in a certain order or mm-hmm. hang up certain garments and they meant There'd be a black things. garment in the series. I think it was, you know. She yeah. did that, and that means she had a message from because yeah. she was like the the caretaker of that. Or it was her house that the British took over. Yeah, and so you know the British guy living there would be having meetings and stuff, and she would spy and, and get information and then pass it on to the Talmadge, I think it was. Yeah. So that show, first of all, she's super hot, so it's worth watching. She's just gorgeous. I'm um, guessing that's probably not historically accurate. Well, I assume it is. <laughs> I mean, everybody looks exactly the same way, and they only cast people who look as good and they're equally as clean as they were back then. No, the George Washington actor is absolutely phenomenal, in my opinion. I think he just nails. So I've read, is it Ron Chernow? Maybe it's McCullough. I can't remember who wrote Washington's um, biography, the real famous one. That may have been McCullough. I'll find out. Find one out of them. It's, it's a huge book, you know, and I, I read the whole thing and I was riveted. I love Washington. One of my favorite men from history. And this character, this acting and writing really captured that feel for who Washington was and how he operated. Just stand-up dude, you know, respectable, quiet in a lot of ways, you know, not interested in social stuff and social scene and all that. Not interested in, you know, running a war either. He was just doing it hesitantly because it was the right thing to do. Just really checks all those boxes in the show. And then the second character that is riveting is John Andre, the British spy. He is absolutely phenomenal, whoever that actor is. Just really, really well done and just... And not villainy, you know, not like the, I remember the villain from Patriot was one of the scariest villains they put on TV, mm-hmm. in my opinion, just because he was through was and ruthless. through, you could just see his evil ruthlessness, you know, in yeah. his eyes. John Andre, you're like, you really like him. <laughs> like, I know you're on the wrong side, but dude, you're, I really want you to win. Well, you know? <laughs> and depending on, you know, you actually might not be, that's what was interesting about the Revolutionary War, because depending on what nation you were from, you were on the right side or the wrong side. What nation you were from, if you were a Tory or, you know, like, yeah, a, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was very easy, I assume, to swear loyalty and fealty to one side or the other, uh, yeah. almost, you know, 50 50 down the middle, which is why it was such a difficult war, right? I have a British friend who named Martin Ridgeway, who uh, actually interviewed on my other podcast. Uh, you don't have, there are no other podcasts besides this one. <laughs> See, we'll delete that. Every year on July 4th, he sends me a message wishing me a happy, seditious trader day. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, as a very English person myself, I chose the correct side. Are you an Anglophile? On. I'm an Anglophile, yeah. You are an Anglophile? Yeah, me too. Yeah. I think yeah. I think I am. Thacker? I mean, that's like the most English name ever. Tomlinson. Come on. Tomlinson. I mean, that's like Wait, a hobbit. It's like you a don't hobbit get much over. more... <laughs> which is ironic because the my actual so that's an adopted name for me and my actual family heritage is much more like irish and i'm a scottish laird yep, yep. So, well that's because you bought some like art or bought whatever, some but, land in scotland yeah. So, but yeah so ron Ch- chernow is the author of okay. washington, washington a life a life that's, that's the one, one i read about. yeah yep. yeah i'll link to that one in the show notes too fantastic yeah. book anything chernow writes uh is great first one of his i read was about rockefeller it's called yeah. Titan. 
Yeah. Fantastic book. Just it, incredibly well. What's interesting to me, man, and I think this speaks to the the would-be thriller authors in the audience. Okay. What's interesting to me is how when I was younger, and I'm talking all the way up into my twenties or whatever, you couldn't have paid me to read books like this. Right. Yeah. I read plenty of books, okay, but you couldn't have paid me to read anything about Washington. And now I just tear through these things like I can't get enough of them. Yeah. And I think that comes from being a writer, actually, because so, you sort of deplete your knowledge on a topic when you're writing about it all the time. That's, well, that's what I was going to say is like you got a tank full of creative ideas and yeah. you just are constantly draining it as a writer and you have to refill it with something. Uh, right. Sci-fi and history books are kind mm. of the, the two for me that I can't get enough of. Obviously, thrill. I pretty much read any new thriller that pops out if I can, you know. Yeah. A lot of my research came from comic books, believe it or not. Early yeah. days. Comic books not so much now. They're not as intelligent now. I'm no, they, go out there and tell back you then, because they, they were reading sci-fi and coming they up with reading sci-fi, you know, history, right. poetry. Uh, I was exposed to a lot of poetry by Robert Frost and and some others uh, through comic books. You know, you can make. I was exposed to Shakespeare through through comic books. So I'm sorry, you're sorry. I'm sorry. Shakespeare. That I was exposed to Shakespeare. <laughs> I hate English people. It's oh just, come on, Anglophile. Yeah, you know. All right. All right. Anyway, so that's. My guy, that's our, my thing, the American Revolutionary Avengers. Well, I have, I guess, the opposite of the Avengers, uh, and in some sense, we are going to talk about the weirdest official race I've ever heard of. I mean, honestly, this is, and maybe there's a weirder race out there. This is weird because it's the official Olympic Games. I mean, this is it. This was the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. They hosted the Olympic Games. It was actually part of the World's Fair. Okay. And this is back in, you know, the early 1900s. We did it in St. Louis because it was the centennial, the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition. Sorry, not the Lewis and Clark. Louisiana Purchase was in 1804. It was right after, I believe, the Lewis and Clark stuff. But they decided to do the Olympics in St. Louis, and they didn't do it very well. And here's what I mean. Specifically, the area they did it in was extremely dry this time of year. It was very dusty. So just already a terror. It was 90 degrees plus the entire time. It was just already a terrible, you know, weather time. And of course, this is a time in American history when we decided it would be smart to wear long sleeves and suit jackets and hats and pants and dress shoes and socks that went up to our knees, just really overdressed. And so everybody was probably hot and sweaty and gross anyway. Um, and they decided to have a marathon as part of these Olympics. So they ran the Olympics and, of course, decided to also make it like a science experiment. At this time in American history, at least, if not world history, there was a lot of experimentation with dehydration. They wanted to wow. see how far people could go without you know, dying and collapsing of dehydration. So they decided this Olympics marathon would be not only just a race, 24 miles, but they decided they were going to test some dehydration as well. So the organizer decided not to allow water for most of the, there was like two spots that you could get a little bit of water and they would limit how much you could get as a racer. So that was one thing they had going for it. There was like six inches of dust on the ground. Like it had been dusty and windy and all that. And it finally just settled. So as they started running, all these cars would be driving next. Because again, we had cars then and they would be driving next to the road, kicking up dust. Everyone's screaming at these runners. And so there were so many runners that couldn't breathe. They just like one of them actually, uh, let's see if I can find where the runner, which one it was one of the, oh, James Sullivan was the organizer who wanted to minimize fluid intake. 
to test the limits and effects of purposeful dehydration, which was a common area of research at the time. But yeah, cars, these coaches and physicians motored alongside the runners, kicking up dust, launching coughing spells. So William Garcia of California almost became the first fatality of an Olympic marathon. Um, he collapsed on the side of the road and was hospitalized with hemorrhaging because the dust that he was breathing in had coated his esophagus and ripped his stomach lining. And this isn't like just, oh, there's a little bit of dust in the air. Let me put a bandana over my head. Let me wear a mask. This was like hemorrhaging. And it said if he had gone unaided in another hour, he would have bled to death. Uh, John Lorden was a racer, was a runner, and he suffered a bout of vomiting because of this and completely gave up. As if this wasn't enough, Kevin, Lynn Tao, one of the South African participants, was actually chased for a mile off course by wild dogs. <laughs> So this is like this apocalyptic scene. You've got dust in the air. These guys are running. It's like zombies are chasing them, and they decide to just release the dogs and, you know, whatever. My favorite part, and I can say that because these guys are all long dead now, so I, I apologize, dudes. But um, Felix Carvajal was a Cuban. He was pretty well known. He was kind of a celebrity runner. He ran at one point the entire length of Cuba to raise money for this thing. Um, so he jumps on a ship and, and floats over to the Americas. And lands in St. Louis with his dress clothes. He's got a you know a long sleeve white shirt on. He's got long knickers and dress shoes. They call them street shoes, but they're like these fancy you know clacky heeled dress shoes we used to wear. So he shows up. He's like, "Hey, I'm here to race." And they're like, "Great, we're about to start. Jump up on the starting line." So he's running in like these clothes. Yeah, famous racer, famous runner. So trotted along you know for a little while in his cumbersome shoes, and eventually he stopped. He was like, "Well, I'm just going to chat with people and hang out." He stopped a car. He asked for peaches. Somebody was eating peaches inside the car. And they said no. So he snatched a couple of them. It says playfully. I like that little adverb, as if they know. Playfully snatched a couple of them and ate them as he ran. So you got this celebrity runner in like dress clothes, holding two peaches, running down this dusty road. There's wild dogs over here chasing Lao, uh, Lin, sorry, Lin Tao. And so, you know, oh, and then Felix comes back later. He gets hungry again and he finds an apple orchard and he, he decides to snack on some apples. This is all during this 24 miles. People are, are supposed to be running. However, these apples were all rotten. And so he, he suffered from stomach cramps immediately. He laid down and took a nap. Uh, Sam Melor was apparently in the lead at one point. He experienced severe cramping. And so he started walking and then eventually just stopped. At the nine mile mark, somebody else got cramps. So he just decided to get into one of the cars that was running alongside this race. Started waving at everybody, just passing everybody by. He actually won the race. So he rode 11 miles, got to the very end, and gets out of the car and decides yeah. to you know, run the rest of the marathon. He crosses the finish line, and the crowd starts cheering and going, oh, an American won, yay, whatever. Alice Roosevelt is 20 years old. This is President Theodore Roosevelt's daughter. She's there. And yeah. she starts putting like the, the metal over his head. And one witness is like, dude, that guy cheated. Like he was in the car. We all saw that. Right. Right. And everyone goes, boo, you know, whatever, America, America, whatever. And then so Laura's, you know, plays it off. He's like, oh, I was never going to accept it. I just, it was, it was a joke, you know, like, whatever. Sorry. <laughs> this whole thing, man. You I mean, so there's another guy named Hicks and he's got yeah. a team with him. He's like got these handlers and they're going to help him get through this course. And of course, because it's 1900 freaking four, they decide that in order to, Oh, and there, oh, I should add, there are no anti-dosing laws or anti-drug laws at this point in the Olympics. So you can do whatever you want to win, whatever edge you need. And of okay. course, we haven't discovered anything useful. We've discovered things like, let's feed him egg whites and trichmen. 
instead. And, you know, of course, this is a uh, like a I think it's a, a chemical used as like a pesticide, but it gives you yeah. a little bit of a stimulant, a boost, of course, in non-lethal dosage. And, you know, so they give him this thing and he gets like ashen and limp, <laughs> basically killing him slowly. Um, they refuse to give him water. Instead, they give him brandy because that helps wash down the strychnine, I guess. They soak his body with warm water. Of course, he still can't drink the stuff. They just sprinkle him with it. And so he just stops working. His body just shuts down. Mm-hmm. So instead, um, he starts hallucinating. He thinks the finish line's 20 miles away when he was in the last mile. He begged for something. Then he begged to lay down. They still won't give him anything. They give him more brandy. They give him two more egg whites. And then he walks the last, walks up the last two. Oh, I didn't talk about the hills. This whole stupid course has a bunch of hills on it. It's not even flat. They have to go up and down these hills as if that's like 24 miles isn't enough, you know? Yeah. So he jogs down the last hill and he gets into the stadium, but he can't run anymore. So the trainers, of course, wanting him to win, pick him up and they just carry him over the finish line and he's declared the winner. He loses eight pounds in the course of the race. It took four doctors and one hour for him to feel well enough. I'm just imagining what these four doctors are doing. Like, well, let's give him more strychnine. Let's no, let's not douse him with water. Let's <laughs> cover him with gasoline and light him on but fire. You can't douse him with water because the whole, you know, the experiment would the be experiment's still going on. Oh my god, this whole thing was just a cluster epic, man. I reading through <laughs> your the article you shared, it mentions that this was part of the whole World Fair in St. Louis, um, and it talks about the Anthropology Days, which we'll talk about in a second. But- I was hoping you would bring that up. Oh my god, <laughs> we actually went to St. Louis a few years ago, and we actually went to the site of the World's Fair and everything. And they've got like these buildings and museums and things. Reading through all this, we discovered the anthropology days and all the things they were doing with this. I mean, it's kind of weird to think that some of the things that were happening were ever acceptable, ever, ever. Like, it's not just yeah. looking back on this with you know <laughs> modern humane eyes, but like the whole anthropology oh, days thing was they imported, quote-unquote, savages. Yeah, and, and that is in quotes. Let's just be sure we say yeah. that it, uh, it's in the article. This is Smithsonian, by the way. So they said, quote-unquote, savages. Yeah, they would bring in tribesmen call them. from Africa and other regions. And basically, they put them on display yep. in these little villages and forced them to do the things that they thought should be done by savages. So, you know, you've got these people who otherwise would be living fairly normal lives back home now have to forcibly like cook a meal over, you know, have to kill an animal and cook it over a small fire that they're allowed to build and things like that. Like, <laughs> right, you know, right. just for the sake of authenticity. <clears throat> and it says, and this is Smithsonian again, their direct quote, the controversial anthropology days in which a group of quote unquote savages recruited from the fair's international villages competed in a variety of athletic feats. Among them, a greased pole climb, yeah. quote unquote, ethnic dancing and mudslinging for the yeah. amusement of Caucasian spectators. <laughs> wow. That's the stuff, man. Now I just want to point out, by the way, that science was telling us to do all this. So science, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Trust the science. That's too controversial. That's me kidding. So that is uh fantastic. That whole story is fantastic. This whole thing. I discovered this and I was like, wow, that is, that now, is like stuff that is real. I, I don't you, think this uh, is cool. This isn't in the cool realm. I mean, it's cool as far as like a freakish moment of history, but holy crap, yeah. we were. But it does tell you something, people. right? So like it makes you think. So when people, the criticism I always heard about the books, Susan Collins wrote Hunger Games. Was it Susan Hunger Collins? Games, yep. Yeah. 
The criticism about Hunger Games was always that it was too far-fetched and wild that society would ever collapse to the point where something like that could be possible. (laughs) No, And then you read history and you discover, (laughs) holy crap, we had our own Hunger Games right here in St. Louis back in 1904. Basically, we already did it. So you want to loop it. I don't want to step on your toes, man. You want to loop this back around to a whole thriller author or any kind of author thing? Well, that it kind of, I was going the same route you were going. Like there's a literal quote in this article that says the Olympics signal event, the marathon. And we all know the story, right? It's the Greek guy was running. He ran 24 miles to just say that, Hey, they're coming or there's war or whatever. And then he collapsed yeah. and died. Right. So it was this whole thing in the Olympics was conceived to honor the classical heritage of Greece and underscore the connection between the ancient and modern. And I'm like, modern sucks. Like we have yeah. fallen far from this classical heritage and this beautiful, you know, Roman Coliseum where these guys are running. Like that's, I'm sure that I'm over sensationalizing and, and over stylizing history because the people have always done shitty stuff. But I feel like humanity has risen up to this pinnacle moments and then fallen. And it's just this endless cycle. And I don't think the first time we were ever considered, you know, classical heritage and this that we just fit this kind of mold was in Greek history. I think there's even more reason to believe that essentially we've we've lost so much of history. And humans yeah. have been around for so much longer than anthropologists and archaeologists are letting us believe that they're refusing to acknowledge it. We've got proof of this now coming out left and right. Civilizations yeah. here in the United North America that's existed so much longer than anybody thought. And everyone who's officially again, I'm making finger quotes here, in a capacity to say yes or no, this happened, is all of a sudden scratching their head going, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, probably not, but I would, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I'm like, no, we were like, you know, apes and we walked up and decided to, you know, live in a little cave together. And then we became a civilization and and we've just been declining ever since is what I'm getting to. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, in some ways we've just been kind of going down and declining ever since. And I don't know, maybe in you, you know, hundred years from now, we're just going to be apes again, living in a cave. What came to mind metaphorically here, because yesterday was the day in our time, yesterday was the day that William Shatner went up into space and came back down. It was like a 11 or 12 minute ride, you know? And when he came down, I mean, he was so moved by the whole experience. But one of the things he said was he commented on how, you know, air, like he's saying this like thin layer of air, it's like thinner than your skin. You know, it's like it was this instant thing. He just connected with that idea that we are just a hair away from death, as he called it, you know, because there was life, the blue sky, and then there was suddenly, bam, there was death, nothing but black. And there's not much between us and that. I think that's a pretty apt metaphor for civilization. We are only ever in a sort of thin bubble of civilization that could just burst at any time given the right nudge and so you know history has just proven that again and again and you know when you look back if you look back at the history of the world's fair there's no wonder that you don't hear much about it now right right yeah the only time you ever hear anything about the world's fair is usually the chicago world which is that where is that where um edison electrified an elephant uh i think you're right i think you're right if you start looking at the history of this thing though like it was a mix of celebrating our innovation mm-hmm. and doing some truly atrocious things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In, in the name of innovation, right? In and the name is, of innovation. Thing. It was 
It wasn't like, innovation like I've cured this disease and everyone's going to be, you know, it was like, no, we, well, we killed yeah. 18 school children in order to find a polio vaccine. Well, and like, like that, purposely you know? dehydrating Olympians as right. they run. Come on. Right. You know, it is no far stretch to realize that keeping water from someone who is vigorously exercising is going to cause harm. We already knew that yeah. thousands of years ago. So what was that about? So that's why, by the way, I'm going to step on my soapbox for just 30 seconds here, but that's why you can't simply trust science. <laughs> you right. have to question everything because sometimes the science is not on your side. <laughs> yeah. No, that's done. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you okay. There. Yeah, I'm, I'm speaking as someone who's a huge fan and believer of the scientific method and science in general and history. What you're saying is like the scientific method is there so that we can question things. The scientific method is a process based orientation toward finding right. an answer. And yeah, right. when we say something like, you know, can't trust science, we're not saying that that's all bullshit. We're saying that don't just take things at face value. Go yeah. figure out how the scientific method was used. Was it used appropriately? Was anybody yeah. harmed in these experiments that they're doing to, to reach this conclusion? Right. I would say, yes. Hey, we understand now that dehydration kills people. Cool. Well, if this is how they found out by withholding water from Olympians, right? I'm not sure that's worth it. I think we can probably make some educated we, guesses we about dehydration. We probably could have figured it out without torture. Something else. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, yeah, that's what always gets about these kind of stories. Like, was there not a single person who stood back and said, Maybe we shouldn't be greasing a pole and making people from Africa try to climb it. Like nobody. <laughs> but again, the hard part about this is we're looking at this through the lens of 2021, yeah, right? Where we and, know a lot of things that we didn't know or think we didn't know. And that's the other thing that I try to <laughs> get across to people is that we can look back at history and be very critical of it through the lens that we currently use. But you have to be able to look back at that and say it was a different time. People were treated very differently back then. The yeah. attitude towards just about everything was very different. And I don't think it's quite just to come down on an entire culture based on these heinous acts that they committed in the past if they grew past them, right? right. There's a reason we don't do this anymore, right? right? We grew up. So you can't, I don't like the idea of, you know, judging anyone based on the worst thing they ever did. I've always hated that. Well, you can't look at this whole thing. Let's take the, you know, in recent news, Facebook went down. There was whistleblower thing. It was all conspiratorial yeah. and stuff. Anyway, I have lots of thoughts about that. But, the whole, you know, Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> comes out and says, well, this isn't, this isn't my fault. This is society's fault. And my first response is, who the fuck do you think society is, Mark? It's you. Right. It's me. It's this us. It's individual fault. people collectively a- making decisions that look like a collective decision. And so you don't get to just paint with a broad brush and say, well, I didn't do anything. It's society because you are society. Yeah. So the same way, man, we don't get to look back at history in a different society, if you will, different culture and say, well, society is at fault. We have to recognize that. Okay, cool. Yeah. There's individual people making individual decisions that are really shitty that yeah. lead to us saying all of society was this way, but that's once oversimplistic as much as it is true. There were individual people who decided this was a good idea. There were individual people who decided, you know, we're not going to give water to these people. It's their fault. Right. Right. It's not society has decided we all should do something. It's, no, there's individual people. We're just too lazy to find them and crucify them. I'm a big fan of take responsibility for your own actions Absolutely. and learn from the past. And this is uh, definitely a story that we hope we have clearly learned something since this happened. 
I don't know if anyone learned anything specifically from this event that still resonates today. I can't say. I can say that looking back at this, my hope in humanity is that somebody saw all the things that were going on in this crazy ass marathon and said, we're probably better than this, or at least should be. Yeah. <laughs> and then that made a difference. Because it, yeah. it got better. Right. This yeah, isn't how we the Olympics. So at some point there was some, you know, decision made that, hey, we can make more money from this whole shebang without the, you know, the ethnic dancing of savages and Greece pole climbing. So naive to think that money's not involved. So I think that was for better or worse, you know, capitalism stepped in and said, you guys want this to be success and want more people to tune in and enjoy it. Get rid of that shit. Do the athletics and that, only. That to me is the hope of humanity right there. Is that capitalism? Is it, capitalism. Yes and no. Not capitalism yeah. itself, but the spirit behind capitalism. Not the end, but the means to the end. Not right? the greed. Right. It's not yep. about greed. It's about where does civilization want us to go rather than where yep. we are. And then the system responds to that. And yep. capitalism is one of the tools that makes that happen. Whether you like it or not. Tool. It can be used for, for evil. It can be used for good. And I think yeah. of it as when things are operating the way they should, it's competitive. It's healthy competitiveness. For the betterment of mankind. And that's what we've seen with yeah. we have private space flights taking Captain Kirk to space. This isn't the government doing it. This isn't society doing it. It's individuals who decided, well, I've got so much money, I'm gonna live out my childhood fantasies and get people to space. Say yeah. what you want about all that money. That's what brought Will Shatner to space. So yeah, there were two other civilians on that flight. Yep. One of them is there? the was it four first... people total? Or are you well, saying I, one was, was an astronaut? I thought there were only three actual civilians, but I don't okay, know. Okay, I see what yeah. you're saying, yeah. But there were <laughs> at least two other civilians. One of them is the first full citizen of Australia to actually go into space. So there was another like historic moment North there. Yep, yep. But those other two, they their their spend on that, they popped 250 grand each oh, I did for that, that. Like, yeah. three minutes of weightlessness. Yeah, I do. So, I that. But what's interesting about that is that is a step toward you and I being able to hop in a rocket and go. Absolutely. That's uh, the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, imagine how much the first e-reader cost, you know, back in the day, yeah. like, whatever, you know, the first tablet, the first car, right? Yeah. So this is obviously not going to always be a quarter million to just float for a couple minutes in space. This is just the beginning yeah. of colonization of the moon, of Mars, whatever. And it starts here. So yep. you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you heard it here first. History <laughs> starts right now. One We're day the to the moon. The idea. I want credit. I want credit for when we are all in space. So, yeah. Actually, I'm going to say this one last thing about that. I know we're off topic uh, no, with, with yeah. the talk of Shatner and everything. But seeing 90-year-old, overweight Will Shatner go into space and come down with this effusive, like, emotional response to it was the first time in my lifetime that I honestly thought there is a shot at me being able to go into space. My whole life, I've loved everything about space. I've loved NASA. I, you know, I built model rockets when I was a kid. Right, I, right. I loved Star Trek. I've always dreamt of it, but it never felt attainable until William Shatner did mm. it. And so that is all I'm going to say about that. Well, that's, I like For it. Now. For me, it was the Martian. Andy Weir, you know, <laughs> makes a botanist, gives a botanist <laughs> the ability to go to space. And I'm like, I'm a trombonist. Maybe they'll need a trombonist in space someday. You know, Who knows? could be. Yeah. Could be. Uh, I don't have my hopes up though. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That was an exciting episode. I think, I think we took some cool turns and 
twists and it's amazing how like that happened by the way from just like all thrillers that we write is twisty and yeah i yeah. hope you guys kept up uh if not you know give it a re-listen a lot of good stuff in here check out those books i'll link them in the show notes and of course if you have anything you want to ask us or argue with us or give us an idea for another topic we, we're big boys we can handle it go yeah. ahead and send them to us and you can do that by way of a thing called electronic mail and that's hello at stuffthatsreal.com we would love to hear from you for Kevin, I'm Nick. Thank you for listening. I'm just not, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm just kidding. I just Whatever. always thought it was funny that news. I was, I was going to sit back. You know, for the person for Kevin. I'm not allowed to talk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've cut off Kevin's microphone. Good night. It's one of those polite <laughs> things that we do that we don't think about. It's like when we say, excuse me, at the supermarket. We're really just yeah. saying, get the hell out of the way. <laughs> pardon you know, me. It's pardon. Like, I said, you're pardon in my way. Excuse me. <laughs> Sounds so much better. But that's really all we're saying. I don't yeah. actually want anything from you except to get the hell out of the way. Exactly. Anyway, get the hell out of the way. We'll see you Pardon next me, week. everyone. And, uh, Thanks we'll for listening. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think, from mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels. Our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages, eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com str.